0: Good morning and welcome to the Daniel Wirtman Show. It is Daniel Wirtman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is Monday, July the 1st. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call and all time zones in between and around the world. Coming up in just a few minutes, we will be joined by Tom Beyer. Really, really excited to have uh, a chat with him But first, uh, a couple things. The U.S. women's national team played on Friday. And as we predicted, if the U.S. women's national team were able to get an early goal, we felt like that would spell trouble for France, and it did. Um, Just looking at the way that the, the match played out, France had much of the possession um, that they were just very sloppy in the final third. Um, it, it, it very much looked like like what we talked about, which is the early goal I, I felt would unsettle France. If they were able to get through the first 10 to 15 minutes unscathed, I felt like France would likely end up winning that match. If the U.S. were able to get a goal, then I felt like the U.S. are really good at front-running. And I felt like they would be able to keep the pressure on, be able to sit back and not be forced to try to come at France, which would then open them up to even more attacks. And that early goal, to me, gave the U.S. – the U.S. did not play well on Friday, but they did what they needed to do in the moments that they needed to do them, and that was convert their chances. They didn't get a lot of chances, but the chances they got, they converted. The early win with Megan Rapino, um, who who didn't, you know, despite the two goals, actually didn't have a great game. Uh, a lot of people, you know, talking about how how great she's playing. She's actually been struggling on the wing. She she's uh, not got the legs to get beyond people. Um, and and struggling defensively in her duties. She's not had great uh, games, but she's had great moments. And when you're in a tournament, like a World Cup, you need great moments from your top players. You may struggle in other aspects. You may not be able to to do what what you want to do in terms of, of competing for your team and working for your team. And it's not to say she didn't put in the effort. That's not at all what I'm saying. But she just didn't have a great game, but she had some great moments. And, and she's, you know, she converts that uh, early free kick chance. And, um, and, and I don't think France mentally ever recovered from that. And, and the, the problem with that chance wasn't that, that she had an incredible strike of the ball. Um, the, the problem with, with that whole setup was actually France. They they tactically handled it all wrong. Uh, it was a it was a kick on the you know if you're looking at the goal on the left side of the 18 yard box, and they only put two players in the wall, and the way those two players were positioned didn't cover enough of the near post in the angle, and so you had the you had the you had those two players, and then. The the head scratcher for me was not just that aspect, but it was also the fact that the the French players were not in front of the U.S. women's national team players in the wall, at right in front of the goal, right around the six yard box uh, in the line. They were they were all marking behind the U.S. player, not a person. In front. So basically, just to to, to give you this picture, if you didn't see the play, you you had Megan Rapinoe taking the free kick. Only two French players in the wall. They needed a third to create, basically, to force uh, Megan at that point to to pretty much only have one option, and that was to try to go high. And at high, it was going to be difficult for her to get from that angle up and over near post, top corner, which would have been a, a, a wonder strike. And I don't know that she could just beaten the keeper from that angle uh, anyway. And the other would have been to try to go into the wall and high, and that would have been an, into a mix. It's not to say that it, it couldn't have worked out, but by keeping only two in the wall, it, it gave the U.S. the opportunity to try to play a ball low, hard, near post, because they didn't really – positionally cover that and then by not having a person on the front side of the uh, row of players both the the French and, and U.S. players that were right at the top of that six yard box area by not having a French player close closest to the ball to start off that succession of players it gave the U.S. a window and the goal. The French goalkeeper never had a chance. She never saw the ball, and um, you know it. It, it found a, a little lane and 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 worked its way through and and into the back of the net before the French keeper saw what happened. So I I think the French tactically got that that moment wrong. Had plenty of game time and plenty of possession and plenty of opportunities to not only equalize and win. They the, the French team, you know. Played pretty well outside of executing in and around the final third. Uh, you could tell they were pressing on some shots and, and really wanting to get that goal back. And were able to get one back after after falling 2, two nil later on with Megan Rapinoe's second goal, which was uh, great work by Alex Morgan and Tobin Heath. That, that goal should should really kind of partially go to those two. They, they had really good moment there on the counterattack against the run of play. And, um, and, and Megan Rapinoe was wide open in the back to, uh, one touch tap into the, into the goal for her second of the match. And again, like I said, you need your best players to have great moments and she had great moments. And so that was, uh, it was really, really a good result, obviously for the U S women's national team. They move on, they play England on Tuesday, July 2nd in the semifinals, um, and uh, we'll see how that one shapes up on the other side of the women's bracket. Um, the surprise upset. Sweden had not beaten Germany in a tournament like this uh, since 1991. And uh, they were able to, to get a 2-1 result after falling early to Germany. They uh, came back and uh, equalized. And then in the second half... Uh, got the second and won two one and 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 had multiple chances. They could have e- even stretched the score a little bit, but they they looked very very good, much better than they did when they played the U.S. Uh, Women's National Team in that final group stage game. Which you know maybe that was just a kind of partial rest day. Maybe that's we don't want to show our cards too early because we may face them again. I'm not sure, but um, they definitely looked really good. Uh, against Germany, Germany just seemed to be out of sorts. They really looked Germany actually really looked like they did in the very beginning of the tournament where they were getting results in their group stage, but they weren't convincing in the way that they were playing that uh, it looked like Sweden uh, had figured something out against Germany and Germany just had no answers the other uh, quarterfinal um, Netherlands uh, looking good again. And, and so Netherlands facing off against um, Sweden and, uh, and then we will see the U S and England. And then the, out of that we'll we'll have our final so uh we'll see how it plays out uh on the men's national team side of the ledger they they are playing in the gold cup which is a uh second-rate continental tournament it is nowhere near uh copa america out of CONMEBOL, south american uh federation nowhere near the the euros uh which is you know probably the number one continental competition in the world um and uh, it, it's a second-rate tournament uh, for a variety of reasons. And, and even still, the U.S. Um, last night faced off against Curacao in a knockout match. And Curacao had more shots, more possession, looked like the more composed team, looked like the better team. They looked like what the U.S. should have looked like against Curacao. The U.S. were fortunate to, to, to get one goal... Um, and win 1-0, but look terrible. Uh, I, I mentioned last night on, on Twitter that uh, after the match, that the, the U.S. Uh, men's national team performance was pathetic, pitiful, and embarrassing. It was pathetic because we should be aspiring to become the greatest soccer country on earth, and our men's national team is awful um i then this is nothing personal against the players in the program this is nothing personal against them as, as people or, or the coaching staff or anyone within the federation this is just an assessment on performance and the performance was was pathetic it was it was not good tactically it was awful the there was uh just poor execution all over the field and it didn't look like this team even had a plan like an understanding of how to play um it it was just really bad and um disjointed disconnected no you know pressing were, um without the ball wasn't good. They couldn't get the ball. They couldn't keep the ball. I mean, it just was a terrible performance. It was it was a pathetic performance. It was pitiful in this from the standpoint of you're going against Curacao and and even the players that they have access to from the Netherlands due to uh that being part of the, you know, um Netherlands, you know, islands and and and, and all of that these players are not playing um you know we're we're not going to be playing for the dutch national team we're talking about players that were were had no hope of that not to say that they're bad players they clearly were were better than our american players which is my point that's pitiful and the last point is it's embarrassing it's embarrassing that we are we are looking at a team that is supposedly, you know, learning a new way and learning this, and supposed to be employing, a, you know, a possession-based style. And I, I don't see it. Like there's, it's all out of whack. The quality of players are not good enough. Um, whatever's being taught isn't working. Um, it's just, it's a mess. And uh, and that's embarrassing because our U.S. men's national team should be aspiring for greatness, and um, you know Curacao in, in the grand scheme of things, if the U.S. men's national team was a quality team, you, Curacao should be dispatched with you know five, six, seven, nothing, and the U.S. holding you know seventy percent of possession. Um, that's what what the U.S. men's national team and a quality performance should look like when we're winning one nil and the other team has most of the possession, having more shots could have easily tied or won that match. If they execute it on some of those shots, that's not good. And that means we're way far off of, of being a quality team and, um, we should not settle. Uh, we, we should expect more. And, um, and, and, and I'm tired of the Federation getting defensive uh, over criticism and uh, a performance or lack thereof. Your job is to build quality and excellence, and it's not getting done And until it does. Um, you know, everyone should be looking at it uh, with a, a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, we want our national team, our, the criticism comes because we want our national team to be great. We want both of our teams to be great the u.s. Men's and women's national teams to be great And there are things that the u.s. Women's national team have got to get better on going forward We can't just rely on having the best players our coaching has got to improve on the women's side um, because because if 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 it does Coupled with having the best players in the world um top to bottom We we can stay on top for a while on the women's side on the men's side we we are nowhere near challenging for excellence and um and we should not settle for that so uh speaking of not settling um Dutkick brand is uh is a brand that you should not settle on it's a brand you should seek out they make quality products that if you are a soccer coach a player a goalkeeper a parent and whatever, uh, and you're looking for some resources that can help you with the game, whether that is uh, learning how to watch a game and take notes, whether that is charting out plays for a team, whatever the case may be, check out DUTKICKBRAND at D-U-T-K-I-G-BRAND.COM. There you will find uh, a plethora of is the word for the day? Plethora of really cool products, and when you go there and place your order, use promo code DW Show and get ten percent off your order. Again, that is DW Show, and you will get ten percent off your order at dutkickbrand.com We'll be right back after this with Tom buyer Back into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Monday morning, July the 1st. And we are really excited to have joining us today, Tom Beyer. Tom, welcome to the show. How are
1: you? Good, Daniel. Uh, I'm glad to be on the show. I'm a big fan.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, I'm a big fan and I am constantly... Talking to people about your work and and your book has been uh, a godsend, quite honestly, because uh, it is it has helped me explain to parents uh, what they can do. Uh, especially uh, being from an area of the U.S. where it's more known for American football and baseball than uh, than soccer, to to have um, you know uh, the ability to say, hey. Here's some things you can do. Who, who, you may not know anything about the game, but here's some things you can do to create a soccer culture in your house and help your kids learn the game. And here's why it's important and have been able to, to put the book in their hands and and, and send them to Amazon uh, repeatedly to, to, to order or get it on their Kindle. Um so, you know, I just want to first, I'll say thank you for writing the book because it's been, uh, it's been amazing, uh, resource and, uh, and I hope more, more and more people, um, are able to read it and, and apply it, uh, to their own houses. So, um, first, before we get into the book and, and your work, uh, your, that you presently do, how did you end up in, in Japan and, uh, being, being an American, um, growing up in the U.S. and, and deciding that uh, Asia was where you were going to camp out for for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah, well, th- thanks first for the uh, for the for the for the plug for the book. <laughs> That's much appreciated, um, and we can circle back about that. But yeah, I got involved in Japanese football, um, boy, back in the mid 1980s. It's amazing how I got involved with the game. Here it was through my. Community College coach in upstate New York, uh, George Visvari, a Hungarian, um, who emigrated to the U.S., and he had, a, he had a very successful career coaching in upstate New York, the winningest coach in the history of the NJCAA, two-time national champions, Ulster County Community College, a little plug for my school there. And he was friends with some coaches that were coaching over here, um, including the head coach of the Japan national team, Hans Oft, who was a Dutchman who was appointed as the first ever foreign non-Japanese national team coach. And again, not getting into the long, the long version, but I got introduced to Hitachi FC, which uh, now is a J-League member. They play under the name of Kashiwa Reisol. Um, And I got introduced there, and I went in uh, and, and, and had a short stint. I, I was there, I played there, but I fell in love with Japan as well. So after my playing days, which were, were much more successful. Uh, my, my, my post-playing days are much more successful than my playing days were. Um, I wound up staying in Japan, and then it's, you know, it's basically kind of a timeline um, from around 1989 until today. I mean, I, I've been here a long time. Um, I came, you know, the pre-J League boom, so to speak, before even the World Cup was thought about coming here in 2002. Um, but that's really kind of how I got my, my start here. Um, and then just kind of the rest is history. And there's, there's lots of different timelines along the way of my journey. But um, yeah, it was from my college coach of how I got involved in, uh, in football here. So it just goes to show, you know, that international connection. Um, anywhere you go, you can sometimes uh, be able to, uh, to get some introductions. And it worked out well. And I've, I've been here ever since.
0: Yeah, I know full well about uh, those those introductions and networking, and uh, have met people all over the world uh, that uh, have opened doors to to other people all over the world. It's it's a it's an incredible thing uh, to, to 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 make a, a connection and then see what happens with that connection that that keeps yielding more and more connections. So, um, looking you know back uh, after you after you quit. Uh, playing you wanted to stay involved in the game and and obviously stay in Japan um, what what was your initial thought process in terms of getting into coaching itself um, was it was it player development from an individual standpoint uh, was it player development in terms of an age specific idea or were you thinking hey, you know, I I I just I want to be a coach and and whatever that means, whether it's a first team coach yeah. or a youth coach or whatever.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting. I had I was very much influenced, as we all are when we're growing up. You know, with um, with people, uh, you know, good role models, right? And I had a really good role model, a guy by the name of Tommy Mulroy. Um, Tommy's pretty well known around the United States, and he went to Ulster County Community College as well. But he was several years older than me, um, and Tommy. Um, wound up probably, maybe you haven't heard of him, you might be a little bit too young, but he's probably one of the foremost soccer clinicians in the United States. And he traveled all over the country. I mean, most of the older kind of school kind of coaches, everybody knows Tommy. And um, so so I was greatly influenced by him. Tommy was more of a kind of a community uh, promoter of the game. He, he once held the world record for juggling on top of the observatory te- uh Room of uh, the Empire State Building as a promotion for uh, the New York Eagles professional team that he played for. So I was really fascinated with doing these events um, and doing camps and things. So that kind of got me started. So again, there's a bit of a timeline, a chronological timeline to what happened with me. And in 1988, before I quit playing, or right when I finished playing, I pitched the idea of doing these style type of football or soccer clinics around Japan. And I pitched the idea to uh, to the Nestle Corporation here, which makes drinks, right? There's a drink called Milo, M-I-L-O. We don't have it in the states, but it's like kind of like a Nesquik. And again, long story short, I pitched the idea of doing it to them, doing it with them as a sponsor, and they bought off on it. And I walked out of a meeting having committed to doing uh, to to planning to do um, fifty events starting in 1989. Now, those events were basically just going around Japan, um, just doing clinics, as we call clinics events, you know, two, three, four, five hundred kids, as many that would come. And then we had a routine. Right. It went usually for about two hours. It wasn't just me, but I was one of the main guys. And then what I did was I couldn't really speak Japanese at the time. So I found guys could they could do things that could complement what I couldn't do. So I found a guy who was bilingual, could speak English and Japanese. I had a friend of mine who was a former national team player. So he provided the network and the name to be able to go into the community. And that's how I got, and that's how it started off. Now, little did I know that that clinic program would run for 10 years. And then that 10-year timeline, I was the constant. And then I had different guys coming around, always assisting me. But that really got my start. That got me out there. That got me into the communities. Um, there's 47 states in Japan, so I would travel around to all these different states doing these events, and I didn't really have a philosophy or any kind of you know kind of uh, methodology at the time. This was my pre-Curver days as well because I was greatly influenced along the, the way there. In the night, in the early 1990s, I was influenced uh, with uh, the Dutchman Will Curver by my good friend Paul Mariner, former striker of England, to, who you might see on ESPN, and he does the uh, New England Revolution uh, color commentating uh, at the the analysis. Um, And he was a a massive influence on me. And he got me interested in the work of Will Kerber. And then we spent about 10 years doing um, these technical clinics and camps and things around Japan. I found an investor, uh, invested heavily into commercial schools. So there's, again, there's a timeline, but that's how I first started out. And I got interested in it. It was really just to survive and keep me in Japan at first. But then, you know, along the way, I I basically started gaining more knowledge. I started, you know, learning more. I started taking my coaching licenses and getting experience. And then, you know, also a little bit of luck involved, but you always kind of create your own luck. But I was in the right place at the right time, too, where. You know, Japan throws its hat in the ring to become the, you know, 2002 World Cup hosts. And, you know, the same year in 1993, the J League is born. So it was just like a, a crazy time to be in Japan because football or soccer had become so popular.
0: So um, I want to take a, a, a little detour before we get back to the next kind of evolution of of your clinics and in philosophy Um, and, and take a quick detour to where you just left off, which is the J league. Um, what was, what was the, the talk of the day about the J league in terms of a vision and a plan and how have you seen that grow since its implementation to where they are now?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Well, the J league was born in 1993 um we started hearing plans about it a few years before that i think it also probably fell in line with the idea that japan wanted to host the 2002 world cup now you got to remember the j league is much different than the mls in that that the j league basically is the professionaliz- the, prof- the if i can get my english correct here, the professionalizing of the industrial league so almost all of the J- – and right now we've got three tiers, promotion, relegation, J1, 2, 3. We've got, I think, 54 or 55 teams in total. And so all, a majority of those teams, I'd say 90% of them, are basically still owned by m- major conglomerates or major groups like, uh, like Nissan, Toyota, uh, Mitsubishi, uh, You know, and then just, just the Mazda, the car companies, the electric, uh, Panasonic um, Hitachi, my old club. So most of them are owned by that. So so there was a structure there. There was a structure there. There was organizations there, teams, people, resources, stadiums. But it was really the marketing side. And it was really more of the professionalism of making it professional to make sure that these teams focused more on, on basically the local community. In the beginning, they forbid um, the companies from using their own Ah, uh, company names like Hitachi against the Chester Nissan. Um, they they try to spur more kind of you know communityism of of of, of not associating with a company. Um, so that's really a major difference between MLS, where MLS was just from zero um, or most of the clubs, right? But no, I mean it, you got to if you know anything about Japan, Japan is a very organized, very disciplined culture and society. Um, this is a league that was almost like a designer league right? I mean like when 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 Japanese uh, 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 basically decide to do something it, it we you know there's a word even in Japanese komakai, which is like a really fine fine detail so the the league from the beginning has been very well organized, very well funded um, you know so it it had a very good start because of that financial backing. You know, here in, in Japan, not just in Japan, but in Asia in general, um, very rarely does a professional club own a, a stadium. Um, they're all owned by either companies or government uh, governments, basically cities. Um, there's no real private ownership of anything. It's the same thing in China, same thing in Korea. Um, and, and there's no real foreign ownership as well. Mo- almost every team is owned with a couple of exceptions, and that's only started recently. Um, but it's a a really much, much different model than, um, if we're trying to compare what's happening in the U S
0: so in, in that, uh, birth, um, the, there, there's been discussion about, uh, you know, recently with Japan and, and, and their 100 year plan and kind of looking at building, um, Obviously, that comes from a culture that you, you're talking about about order and and getting organized, et cetera. How how have you seen that from a cultural standpoint have a uh, have an effect on the growth of the J League and its ability to now be able to? Um, you know, start even getting some international exposure. You've seen, you know, uh, names like uh, Iniesta that have come to uh, play in, in kind of more the twilight of their their careers. But, uh, you know, in years past, you, you wouldn't have heard a lot of that uh, taking place. Um, how, how have you seen that kind of evolution of the J-League continue to grow since, since its birth?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, again, you know, you've got the J... First of all, the JFA and the J League um, are very close to each other. They're in the same building, okay, which is very rare because most federations and most professionals are, 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 are very much divided. Um, but they're in the same building, okay? And, you know, the JFA came out and the J League with this, like, 100-year plan, um, which is quite interesting because, you know, Japan is the kind of country where you leave your ego at the door and you try to do what's best for the game. Right. So they came up with this plan. And I mean, a lot of other countries, especially I work a lot of countries around the world, nobody has, or very few countries have a very long-term vision at the most, maybe it's going to be a 10 years. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I tend to think that maybe that's because, you know, the people that are making the plan want to make sure that they're around to get the credit for when, if it happens. Right. But the Japanese are much different than that. Um, I put something out on Twitter recently, and, and, and I hadn't really thought about it, but if you look at, and these are countries I work in, both the United States, you look at Australia, and you look at Japan, Japan has a budget of over 200 million US dollars per year. It dwarfs the United States and Australia. In fact, it's probably bigger than both of them combined. But yet, but yet, their their chairman and their board members and their president or the CEO are probably on less than $200,000 a year. Now, if you look at that, you know, compared to what's happening in Australia, where the CEO could be on anywhere between $1 to $2 million, or even in the United States, the CEO or the general secretary could be on over, you know, a million bucks a year for, you know, for 10, 10, 15 years, right? I mean, that's, and the reason I'm pointing this out, and I'm not saying that, you know, uh, is paying that kind of money is good or bad, but what I'm saying is, if you if you compare them, you can get a glimpse into the cha- Japanese culture, because everything in Japan is is where we put the team first, the group, the organization comes first, and the people come second. Um, and if you look at the other Western countries, it, it, you can see obviously what they value, right? I mean, we've got problems all, all over all over the world and a lot of federations, and most of them. You know, claim to not have enough money, but yet they pay quite extreme high salaries to their to their to their executives, right? So that's a big big difference um, between what's happening here in Japan. And 200 million dollars that's a massive amount of money, if you think about it. But the reason that they're able to create such a large budget is because of the organizational structure: the technical department, the competition department, the uh, marketing department, and the sales department. They're all very close knit organization where they all talk to each other. So what does that mean? What that means is, is that when the, when the, when the, the, the advertising part of the JFA is going to go to Dentsu, which is the, the, the uh, advertising agent that basically finds the sponsors, they go to them and they can sell them a package that is very well organized, very well thought out years in advance at every single level of the game, whether it's beach soccer, whether it's, you know, futsal, whether it's whatever it is, both men's, both women's. And they're so organized, so then they can go to the technical department and figure out, well, can you prepare teams? And then the competition department is sitting there and and it's all figured out. And I got to be honest with you because I work around the world with many, many federations. There's no federations that's disorganized. So when you're able to do that, you're able to go to your, to the sponsors who are putting the big money up and basically sell them a very well organized, well thought out, well vision, visionarily planned um, strategy um, that works that very few federations are allowed, are able to do because they're disorganized. So that's just a little bit of a glimpse into, you know, what's happening in Japan um, and to show you how that organization, it's like a, a really, you know, well-oiled machine, the way that it works and in tandem with the J league back and forth and the JFA.
0: And, and just to pick up on, on where you're talking about the organization and the planning and putting the team, uh, uh, you know, above the individual uh, in that kind of cultural context. I, I think I saw you tweet this out the other day about the Japanese women's national team in the world cup as well as the men's national team that have been, uh, that were participating in uh, Copa America this year, that both teams were, were sent in it with an eye on next summer's Olympics rather, rather than this year's tournaments that they were trying to get them prepared for next summer's uh, Olympics, um, which, you know, that takes a, a massive amount of discipline from the federation to, yes. to do that. You don't see that very often. Um, you know, I, 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 I re- remember when I saw your comment about that, I was, I was thinking back to, um, the 2018 us soccer presidential election and, uh, and, and I was, uh, working with Eric Winaldo on his campaign and, he would often talk about how he would approach uh, the the U.S. men's national team right now as a preparation for next summer's Olympics uh, in yep. that he would basically like, hey, this is an opportunity to start the slates clean. We've missed the last couple Olympics on the men's side. Let's let's make that a priority. Let's just basically put our entire team, men's national team, the senior team and think of it as the Olympic team and just rebuild, Um, which, you know, kind of follows a little bit of what, you know, Japan uh, did this summer. Um, And and to me, that highlights more what you're talking about in terms of of that discipline and the culture. Um, One of picking up on culture I, I want to ask you to explain for the audience, um, because I love this statement that you say, and you say it all the time, and I, I love it, where you talk about culture. Culture eats strategy, eats whatever yeah. for breakfast. Uh, give us that statement and, and unpack that statement for us.
1: Yeah, well, it's a couple of things. I mean, the, the reality is, is, and this was from all of the research I did and studying different um, countries, different, uh, you know, federations, different countries that, well, th- to be honest, the countries that really um, are hotbeds for development, right? And I started realizing, you know, trying to search out and see, is there some kind of special, co- uh, specialized coaching going on? Or is there some kind of secret recipe, uh, you know, that's happening with young kids and coaches? Is it that they have better facilities, better, co- all of this, and then I realized that it came back to the same common denominator, and that was is that many of the countries that have won World Cup tournaments, and there's only eight out of 211 member associations in FIFA, at least on the men's side, um, you realize that those countries' cultures are conducive to developing players. Um, so you realize that you know a strategy in the absence of a culture uh, doesn't tend to get us too far. And when you start seeing the amount of money – that is being thrown into development. I mean, literally in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of countries trying to, you know, find that silver silver bullet uh, and 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 find that you know secret sauce on on how to develop players. Um, and you see, it's the same countries, right, that that, that keep performing um, and getting to the final four, the to to the to the, to the final of a World Cup tournament. Um, It's the same countries over and over again. So when you see what's acceptable in these countries, so I try to compare it to Japan. So for example, in Japan here, um, it's totally culturally acceptable that when your child is six years old and they cross over that line into organized play, um, that they will train probably three to four times a week, uh, two to three hours per session, 52 weeks a year. That's a culture thing. Everybody accepts that. Everybody accepts that that's the way that, you know, that, uh, that they organize the game here, um, and it's accepted by people and families. Um, and the other thing, too, is that it's, it, the culture is such that in Japan here, um, this is basically the whole uh, amateur, at least let's talk about under 12, because that's usually the most biggest numbers, the whole under 12 uh, uh, f- football development and, and, and the whole plan is done by volunteers, Um, so a majority of kids that play are playing for teams that are, that are being coached by volunteers. Some, some, they get paid, but for the most part, it's very cheap. So the barrier is low. So my kids, and they play purely in a Japanese team system, they pay probably on average of maybe a hundred to $150 for the year. And that pays for the uniform. That's it. Now, if they go away for a camp or something, you know, maybe it's two or 300 bucks, but for the most part, you know, it's just maybe a couple of hundred bucks. It's not like in thousands. And then all the facilities that they use are free. Nobody has to pay for a facility here to be used because the community, and again, that's another cultural thing because we don't have such a litigious society and culture here. Um, people aren't afraid that, you know, if jo- little Johnny trips over and, and, and breaks his toe, they's going to sue the school um, because, you know, he was clumsy and he gets a million bucks. So, I mean, it's just these are cultural things, right? And so when it comes down to it, and I see – uh, the great countries and the best countries that develop players and and develop the best teams, to me, it's it's it it's absolutely as clear as can be that those cultures play the biggest role in uh, in football development. For me, so that's why I'm always preaching culture, culture, culture.
0: So uh, now we are we have uh, navigated uh, a winding back road back to where we were in the beginning. Of culture in your book, in your work, um, which to me is, is really a roadmap to creating a soccer culture in your house. Um, yep. as a mom or a dad, and, uh, and, and how do you create a soccer culture for your kids? Maybe you're not from a soccer uh, background. Maybe this is uh, something new for you and for your kids at the same time. Uh, t- tell us how you landed on this age group, uh, three to six, and, and, and what led you in your work and in your research to uh, writing your book in the first place?
1: Sure, good question. So basically, as m- most people know, or if they don't, your listeners, um, I'm uh, my background is as a, t- a technical coach, purely as a technical coach. What's a technical coach? Well, I'm looking after basically developing individual players. Uh, not out on a team. I I have that experience. I've done that. I was the coach of the under 12 national select team in Japan for about 10 years. But my primary responsibility and job has always been a technical coach. So it wasn't until I had my own kids that I started realizing and putting pieces together. And uh, I have a wonderful kind of statement in my presentation from Steve Jobs, that says the only way you can connect the dots is by looking backwards, not forwards. And I started looking at all everything that I had learned from previous, not just on the technical side, but I have a very, um, very unusual skill set because I I work with brands. I work with media. I create content. I've done events. So I have a very good understanding of the football ecosystem. So it wasn't until my kids were born. And again, I'll give you the short version, but I placed a lot of of these little mini balls inside uh, my home. Um, and when my, my first son Kaito started walking, um, I made these balls part of the environment and I encouraged, uh, him to just kind of play with the ball, try to pull it back. But I discouraged him from kicking. And that was really the big, the big, uh, game changer for me was that I realized that this is a sport where the entry level is kicking or shooting usually. And when you go around the most parks in the world, you'll find that they're filled with parents and they're kicking the ball back and forth. So what I'm saying is is that before conditioning a kid to get rid of the ball, we have to condition the boy or the girl to basically hold the ball. Um, and, and, you know, I, doing my research again, I'd come across a statement or a story by Neymar's father where he was saying, you know, the world doesn't understand football because development because in Brazil, kids don't fall in love with football. They fall in love with the ball. They fall in love with the ball first, and that leads to falling in love with the football. So a little two-, three-, four-, five-, six-year-old doesn't have any idea or context of playing the game. They fall in love with the ball first, and that leads to the game. So I understood that. Um, So I set up the environment inside my house uh, and made basically the ball the favorite toy. And every time my boy would address it and play with it, I would try to encourage him not to kick it. I'd kind of model it. I'd pull it back. And then – It wasn't until I was asked in China, I was doing some work already for the Chinese government or the professional team or the Federation or one of those. And I got asked to meet with an owner of a very well-known kindergarten in in Beijing and if I would talk to him about maybe some ideas. And Daniel, literally, I was on the plane ride from my home to Tokyo and I had my Mac on my lap and I pulled out a PowerPoint, a blank PowerPoint, And I started writing down ideas, and then I started just writing ideas of what I was doing with my son. And sure enough, that's how this whole thing got born. And then I started putting down other notes, and then I started documenting, I started videoing a lot. And again, long story short, I started connecting many, many, many different dots. Um, But it wasn't until I started creating this presentation, and that presentation started to grow and as of today, I think I've got about 170 slides in that presentation. I go, I go around the world. I show this presentation everywhere. I've been invited to the biggest you know, professional clubs in the world, including Manchester United, Ajax, um, um, Dynamo Zagreb, um, Federations as well. So this thing morphed into this huge presentation. Then I thought, okay, well, why don't I write a book based on this presentation that I'm going around the world doing? So that's how the book came about. And then one very important piece of it which was a massive breakthrough for me, was that what I had just almost done with the book and I was contacted by a very prominent, well-known doctor from Harvard Medical School named Dr. John Rady. He's one of the foremost neuropsychiatrists in the world. He's written a dozen books. One's called Spark. It's very well-known. And Dr. Rady contacted me because he heard about work I was doing in China and he was working in China. So he asked to, to, to have a chat with me. We had a phone call. And then he took a big interest in my work, and I told him I was writing this book. He said, "If you want, I can read the manuscript." I sent it to him, um, and then he uh, he graciously offered, and he wrote a big piece in the book, and we made it into the forward and the afterward of the book. And since that, I've been doing collaboration with him, um, it, working. I'm I'm working on an unbelievable research project um, right now uh, with a professor from Stanford University and professor from. Harvard University. But what happened with, with with Dr. Rady was he taught me, he basically explained the science to me of what was happening inside my living room that I could not explain, but I knew it was working because I could see the results and I had video. So basically kind of here it is. And for me, if there is a secret sauce, this, this to me is, is our secret sauce and it's here. When you've got a child and they're playing inside a home That's what they consider a very safe, protective environment away from ridicule, that environment of being inside the house. And that connection between the child and the parent and that understanding for a child's need for parental approval is what's key. Because the child is always trying to get the approval and please mommy and daddy or whoever the primary caretaker is. And what happens is that interaction creates what we call an electrical chemical process in the brain, which is called emotions. So when you can create an emotionally charged environment, okay, that's when deep learning and long-term memory takes place. So then when I started correlating and reading all the stories, I filmed a special down in Australia based on 11 stars that played in the past World Cup in Russia. And these weren't 11 Australian stars, but it was for a broadcaster that had the World Cup rights. And I connected the dots. I started doing my research, and I found the common denominator was all of these players started playing between the ages of two and five, and all of them started playing around the house and the role that the father and the mothers played. And who are those players? Messi, Ronaldo, Suarez, Iniesta, Neymar, Pogba, Hazard, Lewandowski, Cruz, Kane. And then I started connecting all these dots and thinking, wait a minute. These kids are getting such an early start before anybody else. The role that mom and dad are playing more often than not is happening inside the house because it's a two, three, four, five-year-old, and hence again that again that validation of this whole concept that football starts at home. So if you see the best of the best, there's almost always a backstory that always circles back to what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I absolutely love it, uh, and love your work, love the book. Uh, it's why I I recommend it so often uh, because I, I I really feel like for the first time um, ever uh, we have the ability to to say here do this, read this, yeah. understand, yes. uh, you you know, and you and you've and you've made it so accessible uh, a roadmap to create true soccer culture in your house. Um, you know, which is, you know, on a, on a micro level, uh, if, if we had that happen, you know, m- multiples and in, in, in exponential times over creates a, a soccer culture on a on a macro level. Um, and so, you know, uh, we can't get there if we don't take care of our own houses first. Um, and, and I've seen it with my own kids. Your work has inspired, you know, uh, the, the work with, with my kids and, um, you know, my, my wife, um, uh, may, uh, you know, get annoyed by, uh, the fact <laughs> that we have balls everywhere. Um, she's often complaining about that, that, uh, that we can't get anywhere without a ball that's always banging in the trunk or, um, you know, in the car. Or the, the other night, uh, uh, she and I were, were out and we didn't have our kids with us, and uh, and and there was a ball that was rolling back and forth in the in the in the back seat uh, floorboard, and uh, and so I reached back and, and grabbed it because she was you know getting annoyed by it. So I I pick it up and. Um, you know kind of tossed it further back into the car to keep it from from rolling around and I take another turn and and we hear another ball <laughs> in the back and i'm reaching back and she's and i was like man i guess there's more and she's like I, I can't get rid of them they're everywhere <laughs> and, uh, and so like you uh you know we we, we definitely have been inspired inspired by your work uh in in your 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 thought process Um, in in trying to create a soccer culture within our own home in terms of of having balls everywhere. I mean, we even uh, took um, – and and my oldest son still has his room set up in a way where he can – uh, do technical work in his room. So he's got everything kind of over to one side. And so if you walk into the room, if you're an interior decorator, you'd be like, man, this is a terrible design. But functionally, he's like, I don't want furniture around the room because I want at least you know 60% of my room accessible so I can, can do touch work. Um, and at one point, we even uh, had both boys in the same bedroom so that they could have one room completely cleaned out. Uh, it had nothing in it. And all they would do is go in and, and play. So, um, you know, th- that's part of you know our way of trying to create soccer culture uh, within our house. But it's been inspired uh, by by your work, and um, and and to me, that what you're hitting on in terms of uh, players like Messi and Neymar and Suarez and others, in um, in the work with your own son that you've documented is the key. I mean, that's, you know, I, I, I said this the other day and I was actually talking about you and uh, this is before um, I was even uh, having a conversation with you about coming on the show. Um, because again, I, I talk about your work all the time to people. And one of the, the conversations I was having with someone about your book uh, was, was like this. I said, look, if you were to send your kid to school and and you had never taught them to speak, so they go into kindergarten and they've never said a word in their life. They, you know, they they, they can't speak the language. They don't understand the language. Um, and you drop them off at kindergarten. And go, hey, uh, enjoy yourself. Have a great time. Uh, it's yeah. going. It's going to be awful. And I said that is how drastic it is when you take. Um, your son or daughter at five six seven eight years old and you drop them off for their first team practice and they can't speak the language of of soccer with their feet if their feet don't work with a soccer ball and you drop them off um it's going to be a a frustrating experience for them And that's why it's so important to to take your kids when they're, you know, just walking all the way up to six years old and keep those balls around so that they can just speak the language of soccer. And when I put it in those terms, they were like, wow, that makes
1: sense. So, yeah, well, here's another analogy. And I get a lot of studies. I'm very fortunate because I'm connected academically and and around the world. A lot of people send me things. They did a study and they found that, you know, two infant babies, one coming from a professional family, wealthy family, and then the other one coming from a a poor family um, where the parents aren't around, that the the, the wealthier kid is basically going to be exposed to about 150,000 words per hour. OK, as an infant, which means each year by the end of the year, it comes out to roughly like some crazy number, like eight million words. OK, well, by the time that child is four or five years old, they're exposed to 32 million words compared to the other child. And then they just track it and they can see. I mean, so it's exactly like that. It's like sending your kid uh, to like an advanced mathematics class of, you know, geometry, or algebra, or trigonometry, when nobody offered the child the class for counting or adding and subtracting. And that's what happens in the sport, because, and here's the other reality, and I, I said this on a, on, a, on a stage in Russia on a, uh, with the Secretary General of FIFA, I was on a panel discussion, I said the reality is we call this the world's game, and the world's game is failing the majority of the kids that play, because a majority of kids who play the sport are technically poor. That's just the reality. Everywhere in the world you go. Um, so there's something that's, that we're doing wrong. Um, It's the approach. Um, but yeah, a- absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. It's, it's exactly like, you know, educate. You know, when you find a child who excels in education, you'll find that there's a culture at home. There's that word culture again, a culture at home that values education. That's why the kid's doing well in school. So everything starts at home, you know. Um, and, you know, we're just highlighting that, you know, if you want your kid to be a good soccer player, then you might want to basically prepare them for the day they're going to cross over that line into organized play because there's just so many benefits the kid shows up on day one that kid's more popular because kids want to be paired up with him or her or he or she uh the coach is singling them out to come out and demonstrate so now the kid is getting a little confidence they're getting you know they're getting opportunities to experience leadership at the age of six or seven so I mean, there's 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 no doubt about it. Um, the benefits of the early uh, the early start.
0: Well, I would uh, I, I definitely would love to have you back on again uh, soon to talk uh, even more about uh, your work and uh, and get into even other other conversations that uh, I would love to have with you about uh, how we create. Uh, change on uh, on a macro level uh, within countries uh, of changing culture um, on our next chat, but uh, uh, I really appreciate you coming on today. How can people connect with you, and how can they um, you know follow your work and, uh, and and connect with you you know online, social media, etc.
1: Sure. First of all, yeah, I'd love to be back again because. Um, I can tell you all the exciting things that we're doing around the world, but even in particular in the United States, we've got some massive projects that are happening in the United States. Uh, some that have started already, and then some that are going to start um, that are going to be, I think, game changers for the United States. Um, I'm very active on social media, as you probably know. You can find me on Twitter, Tomsan. Uh, that's T-O-M-S-A-N one zero six. Um, our website too is Tomson.com T O M S A N.com C O M. We have the second edition of our book, football starts at home or soccer starts at home, depending upon what country. And that's going to be coming out. I would say 100% sometime this month. It's at the printers as we speak. Um, it's been sold out for several months, unfortunately, but it's coming back, uh, back online very soon. Um, so those are the ways that you can engage with me. Um, I, I answer and reply to probably 99.9% of all the inquiries and some of them can be pretty wacky, but I, I try to, if you're in a, if, if you deliver your questions or your challenges to me in a polite form, you'll always get a reply.
0: <laughs> well, I, um, I, I'm a, a testament to that, uh, as we connected years ago and, uh, and, and, uh, I really have been a big fan of yours for a long time, ni- a long time. And, uh, really personally appreciate your, your work and, uh, and really glad that, uh, you're now starting to, to make some inroads here in the U S uh, as we all know, uh, we, we have a lot of, uh, of work to do to, uh, to improve our soccer culture within this country. So, um, I'm excited to follow that and we will definitely look to have you back on again soon to, to get into some of that work. And, uh, again uh thank, big thank you to you for spending some time with us today and coming on the show
1: yeah thanks a lot Daniel anytime I, I enjoy the chat
0: thank you that was Tom buyer of uh, football starts at home you can find that on um, you know on Amazon you can uh, again find his website tomson.com T-O-M-S-A-N.com. And uh, he, his work is: if you have small kids or you're about to have kids, you should get the book. It's an easy, quick read, and it is a great, great guidance for you as as a new soccer mom or soccer dad on being able to build culture within your 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 own house, um, not even having to worry about organized soccer down the road. Like, how can you prepare your son or daughter? Um, to fall in love with the ball first and then the game later, uh, which I think uh, was a great point that he brought up uh, there as well. Um, our our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water, uh, an, an organization doing incredible work around the world, much in the same way that that Tom does great work around the world. And Charity Water provides clean drinking water to people. And uh, they are changing lives, changing villages. And you can be a part of that story by going to charitywater.org. We will be right back after this.
2: No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. water and a lack of toilets, kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them, it changes everything. You could know that you would made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the lives of a family, of a community, of a region, there was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens.
0: welcome back into the show thanks for tuning in this monday july the first really big big thank you to tom byer for spending some time with us today Um, his work is is incredible and um, you should definitely check it out thanks to him for coming on the show and um you know big i look really look forward to having him back on again to talk more about his work uh as well uh we we have uh a a big uh week ahead of us uh sarah Loden, uh thomas sawinski brian coston and sherry levesque uh coming up later this week fourth of july week here in the united states uh so uh stay safe this uh this week enjoy yourself uh i know a lot of people have vacations uh planned uh but uh thanks again for tuning into the show each and every weekday at 9 a.m eastern standard time you can watch live on danielworkman.com and uh, we appreciate all the viewers and all of the feedback as well thanks for tuning in and we will see everyone again tomorrow